0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them up to Psalm chapter 115. We've been working our way through various Psalms since the fall, and today is our last Sunday in Psalms. We'll do an application Sunday next week um, to kind of close out our study, and then we're going to transition into a different study uh, moving forward. So i just really thankful for our time in the book of Psalms. Um, being able to hopefully equip you with um, truth and encouragement to share with each other, because that's how we kind of got into this study, coming out of Ephesians, looking at the responsibility that we have to speak to, another, to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, being able to go to the book of Psalms and find truth there that's needed not only to speak to our heart, but to speak to others' hearts as well. Last week we looked at um, Psalm 14 and looking at the Uh, Just the the folly that there is when we um, either believe or live as though we don't believe God exists. Um, We talked about how fools reject God, fools oppress his people, but God rejects fools and restores his people. We talked about trusting God, and when we do that, we don't have anything to fear. If we ignore God, though, we have everything to fear. And so uh, challenging you last week to examine your life and whether you live as though God exists every day, Do you live as though you want him to exist? Is there a begrudging type of obedience that's attached to your following him? Or is there an excitement and a joy that comes from knowing he's good, knowing that what he calls us to is good as well? And so I think it leads us into some of the thoughts and ideas we see in Psalm 115 today. I want to read for you our our text, which is the entire chapter. It says, now to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth has, uh, he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Our summary sentence for today. The superiority of God over created idols Is seen in who he is and what he does versus what idols are incapable of being and providing, giving us reason to trust him and praise him as we live for his glory and not our own. The superiority of God over created idols is seen in who he is and what he does versus what idols are incapable of being and providing, giving us reason to trust him and praise him as we live for his glory and not our own. For our kids, God deserves our worship because of who he is and what he does. So be sure to not worship idols. I thought about this chapter as we were wrapping up in our men's D group, our study in First John. So our ladies will be gathering this week to discuss First John chapter five. And um, most of you've probably looked ahead and been able to study to see that uh, verse 21 of chapter five, the, the closing out of this pa- or this whole book, First John, says, "Little children, keep yourselves." from idols. And if you think back, all that we've studied in First John, the idea of having a correct understanding of who Jesus is, um, having a correct understanding of what it looks like to love other people as a reflection of the love that we have for Jesus, what it looks like to obey his word, to obey his commands. The final thing that, that John communicates in this letter is that we are to keep ourselves free from idols, indicating to us that there's still a temptation to to live for idols. There's still a temptation to serve idols and to worship idols, whether it's the the, the man-made creations that we see in this chapter, or whether it's simply worshiping and longing for the things that God hasn't given to us, right? Uh, Probably more modern-day type idols that we would see today that that maybe we're even prone to struggle with would be uh, desires for money, sex, power, things that maybe God has in our minds withheld from us, these, these good gifts that we would perceive to be good for us and God hasn't bestowed those to us. And so we go running after those things, running after the things that God has created, running after the things that God can give. And we make those things idols potentially in our life because God hasn't given to them. We step in and decide we'll go try to get them ourselves. Right? John says, keep yourself free from idols. Keep yourself worshiping the one true God. It's the same message here in Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name we give glory, not to these idols, not to these things that are uh, man-made or even maybe God-made that have just been withheld from us. These things do not deserve our attention. They don't deserve the glory that we can give to God. I want to jump right into the text this morning. We're going to see uh, three different sections here in, in uh, Psalm 115. Three different sections, with the first section beginning with the idea that we are to remember God's glory is always the goal. God's glory is always the goal. The psalmist here reminds us that it's not about us, it's all about him. The idea being, number one here, that all of creation is designed for God to receive maximum glory through the activities that take place within it. So all the activities that are taking place in God's creation, they are designed and structured and organized in such a way for him to receive maximum glory. God's the focus rather than man when it comes to everything. He's the central character and all events and actions point to him, meaning that he's working and moving in such a way to make his name known in greater ways. Whether that's through uh, blessing or even tragedy potentially god is always working and moving in such a way where he is glorified and his name becomes further known look at some passages that i want to read to you from the old testament joshua chapter 4 verse 24 joshua chapter 4 verse 24 i'll start in verse 23 for the lord your god dried up the waters of the jordan for you until you passed over as the lord your god did to the red sea which he dried up for us until we passed over why verse 24 so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the lord is mighty that you may fear the lord your god forever god working and moving and acting in such a way so that not just his people but so all peoples will know his power all peoples will know his glory first kings chapter 8 verse 41 first kings chapter 8 verse 41 says likewise when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, comes from a far country for your namesake. For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards his house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. This is a prayer that Solomon has as he's constructing the temple for God. He says, "Hey, as people hear of your greatness." And that was kind of the picture in the Old Testament that 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 Israel would would show God's greatness and people would come to know him through those displays of greatness. Solomon says, "As foreigners are coming, potentially drawn to worship you in this temple." Right? So he's thinking, he's forward thinking like As people come to this temple that haven't even come yet, people that are going to come from foreign lands, and they come to worship you and they come to pray here, he says, "I, I want to see you answer prayers for them that would then turn into greater worship for those that would hear about those answered prayers. God has structured all of creation, designed it in such a way so that he receives glory through all the activities that are taking place. And he's not willing to share that glory. He's not willing to share it with any other being Any aspect of creation, Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now, that may seem prideful or may seem arrogant for God to say, all glory for me and none for anybody else. Like, I deserve all the glory. And yet, he would not be good if he did allow his glory to be shared right? If he ever gave us the thought process that he had a rival that compared to him, an unworthy rival, right? One who doesn't really compare to him, but if he were ever to share his glory, it would communicate an on-par rivalry. Here's someone who deserves to be in the conversation with God's greatness, and that wouldn't be good for God to ever have us enter into a mindset of thinking that anything or anyone compares to God. And so he protects us by saying, I'm not going to share my glory because I don't want to confuse you into thinking that anyone rivals me. The goal of our activity then as his created beings is to make his name greater, right? John the Baptist gives us this mindset in John chapter three, verse 30. He says, Jesus must increase and I must decrease, right? John the Baptist had a great and thriving ministry and and people were coming to know the Lord through him and, and then Jesus comes on the scene. So John the Baptist has paved the way, Jesus comes on the scene. And we talked when we were going through our study in the gospel of John, how it would have been potentially tempting for John the Baptist to have felt a rivalry with Jesus. Like if he had forgotten what his purpose was, what his job was to feel almost slighted Here's all my hard work, and now I'm supposed to decrease? Now I'm supposed to go back into the shadows so that Jesus can shine forth? John the Baptist says, no, this is absolutely appropriate, right? Like, Jesus is to increase. I am to decrease. And that's to be our perspective in all of life. As we strive to do, as 1 Corinthians 10 tells us to do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we bring him glory and honor. We do it to our very best to honor him. Not so that our name can be made great, but so that his can be. This is ultimately where we fall short, right? Romans 3, 23. We all fall short of the glory of God. How do we do that? Well, we strip him of his glory by desiring it for ourselves. So when we sin, we step outside of a trust for God and his word and the things that he tells us to do. We step outside of that. We fall short of his glory because we fall short of giving him glory. We start to strip that away and seize that for ourselves. And God says, I'm not going to share my glory. I'm not going to share my glory. By not trusting him and by not obeying him, we openly reject his worthiness for trust and obedience. Sin makes us want to be our own king. We want to make the rules and get to be praised for it. And so we reject his authority for ours. We talked about that some last week. that That the fool believes there is no God because he doesn't want to submit to divine authority. And so we need to remember this morning, God's glory is always the goal. All of creation is designed for him to receive glory. Number two, those who are truly God's people understand the goal of his glory. They understand it as right and good and they participate in it. Those who are truly God's people understand the goal of his glory as right and good by participating in it. Now, back in Psalm 115, we're not just told to give God glory with no reasoning behind it. The psalmist reminds us why we should be motivated to do this. And so we see kind of the the fuel that keeps us pushing forward with a mindset of giving God glory. Look what it says. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. What fuels our understanding and participation in seeking his glory? It's his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards us. Now remember, these are core attributes of who God is that we've seen in the Old Testament already. So you go to Exodus 34. Remember, Moses says, I want to know you. I want to see you. God says, nobody can see me, but let me communicate to you who I am. This is how you experience me, right? I'm a God who's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in what? Steadfast love and mercy. He's faithful. He's steadfast in his love. These are the, the character traits, the attributes that God wants to be known by. The psalmist reminds us here, because of his steadfast love, because of his faithfulness, he deserves to be glorified by us. His continued goodness to us will give us our greatest experience of joy. Living for his glory is the path to our greatest good. Let me say that again. His continued goodness to us will give us our greatest experience of joy. Living for his glory is the path to our greatest good. We sin when we stop believing that and we step outside thinking that good is better outside of God, that God doesn't understand good for me and I've got to go take that myself. We're to pray for God's glory to be known through us and then when God does a work through us, we assign glory to him. Listen to this. If the Lord ever accomplishes anything through us, let us be quick to give him all the glory. In everything we do, we glorify him. If the Lord ever accomplishes anything through us, let us be quick to give him all the glory. In everything we do, glorify him. And that's so hard because we're tempted to try to take that glory for ourselves, to build ourselves up, to find potentially power and money, even within our successes. And and the, the psalmist here reminds us, not to us, but to the Lord, we give the glory for our accomplishments. And it's the living, obedient that do this. So, We've seen already a lot of stuff here in verse 1, but let's fast forward all the way to the end of the chapter. Verse 17. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore praise the Lord. Now, hopefully we know enough about the afterlife that obviously the dead in Christ are certainly praising the Lord, right? We, we know from Revelation that, that people from all tribes, nations, and tongues are going to be praising him in death. So this is, this is alluding to uh, the unbeliever, the one who has chosen to reject God and his existence, has failed to submit to his authority in this life. They don't get another opportunity when they're dead, right? When all that glory is seen in their death, when it's seen in that judgment, they don't get an opportunity to change their mind and retract on everything they've done in this life. And so the challenge to us is to, while we are living recognize our need to glorify him the living choose to do what the unbelieving dead can no longer participate in the psalmist says while you are alive praise him glorify him it's those people who will be praising him and glorifying him in the life to come not to us O lord but to your name we give the glory now look at number two here we need to deconstruct our idols to keep ourselves from them Deconstruct idols to keep yourself from them. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, deconstruction is a popular term in, in Christianity right now. It's a popular term for why people are leaving Christianity or reinterpreting Christianity, right? This idea of really reexamining your faith, reexamining everything you've been taught before, and, and wrestling with the validity of it is, is really kind of the idea that I get from people who are talking about they are deconstructing right? It's critically rejecting what you've always thought to be true with a desire to embrace a re-examined truth, a more informed truth, right? So you got all these people that are like, I grew up in church, I grew up hearing all this stuff, and and now I'm taking a a closer look at it, and, and I'm dismissing a lot of it. Surely Jesus didn't mean this, even though we've been told that most of our life. Even historically, we've been taught this. It can't be what he means, because the experience of today is so different in the Bible. So all this deconstructive type talk, right? What I find interesting in this chapter is that the psalmist is really challenging the idolater to do that to his own faith, right? He's challenging him who has given his trust and his obedience and his, uh, his sacrifice to this false God. And he's saying, hey, step back and really examine what it is you're doing, right? He challenges the one who has given his life to idols to really deconstruct that faith. And he says, really think about what it is you're doing. He says their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths. They don't speak. They have ears. They don't hear noses. They don't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. They don't make a sound in their throat. He, he shows the inferiority of them in comparison to God. Now, why is this helpful? Well, because John tells us in 1 John 5.21 that we are to keep ourselves free from idols, which means, yes, we may have been saved and brought into relationship with Christ, but there's still this temptation at times to go back to the way we were living, to be tempted by the idolatry of this world. And so the psalmist is telling us, like, hey, keep in mind what it is. Keep in mind what it is to not follow God and to follow other things. And so as we're thinking about what it means to to deconstruct this idolatry, to really see it for what it is, to, to make sure that we're not falling prey to it, it starts with number one, understanding the criticism of the true God to avoid deconstructing your faith. Avoid deconstructing your Christian faith by understanding the criticism that's often thrown towards our God. That criticism is seen in verse two. Why should the nation say, where is their God? That's the criticism that's thrown at our God today. It's why people are leaving the faith. It's a lack of belief in his active, good presence. Why? Because bad things are occurring even in the lives of his people. Therefore, he cannot exist. That, that's the mindset. Okay? That's a big reason why people leave the faith. And we've talked about why people leave the faith here multiple times, right? It can really be summed up in a Uh, um, uh, a bad experience with God, a bad experience with the church, or a letdown with the Christian life, right? You had expectations that this is what would happen when I came to Jesus and it didn't happen and so therefore I'm out. Or I thought this is what God would be like because this is what I want him to be like and he's not like this and so I'm out. Or I thought people who really followed God would act like this and they're not acting like this towards me, so I'm out. The psalmist says, hey, people are gonna look and say, where is their God, This God that we're saying, not to us, Lord, but to you, give all the glory. The nations are going to come alongside of us and say, where's their God? It's motivated by a dissatisfaction with their experience of God, right? The idea being, where were you, God, when this happened? And so the fool goes down that path and says in his heart, there is no God. We saw that last week. There is no God, because if there was God, he would have not allowed this to happen. And once you've made that decision, it frees you then as a doubter or a rejector, to live life for your own glory rather than God's. So here's where, here's where I want you to stay with me. We have a responsibility to hope in God even when his presence feels hidden sometimes. Let me say that again. We have a responsibility to hope in God even when his presence feels hidden sometimes. That's when his glory shines through. When our reason for hope is not obvious, and yet we keep hoping. Look what the psalmist says. They're going to say, where is their God? And what's the response from God's people? Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Right? Our God does exist, and our God is working. He's working in ways that that are consistent with what pleases him. Remember that power position that he's talking about there. Our God is in heaven. Our God is in heaven. Psalm 113, three through five. From the, uh, from, the, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? That's the position that our God sits in. Far above Everything. Right. And then we saw in our study in Ephesians chapter one, Jesus has been positioned there. Right. He's been positioned on that throne. So our God is in the heavens and our God is ruling and reigning. He's got the position of power. And then he's got purpose behind that that power. Right. Because not only is he in heaven, he's doing what pleases him. Psalm 135. Psalm 135, verse six. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Verse five says, for I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. He's sitting in the heavens with the power. He's doing whatever pleases him. Nebuchadnezzar even recognizes this in uh, Daniel chapter four. And this would go back to what we were talking about earlier, that not only would God's people give glory to God, but all peoples would give glory to him. Daniel chapter four This is after Nebuchadnezzar has been humbled by God. He's been living like a beast, an animal, because he tried to take God's glory. Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will amongst the, heaven, the host of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is somebody who's not part of God's people confessing. My experience with this God is that he is in heaven and he is doing absolutely what pleases him. He deserves all the glory and honor. Nothing of mankind can strip that from him. He's free to act. And he's free to delay, but he's always ruling and reigning and doing all that he pleases. And this should produce hope and comfort in us. And yet, I I talk with people who are so willing sometimes to accept an alternative, right? That it's too hard to grasp how a God with all power and all goodness could allow evil to happen. And so they start to strip away aspects of God to reconcile that in their mind, as though maybe God's not fully in control, and by doing so, they somehow find hope and comfort in that. And to me, there's no hope and comfort in a God who doesn't control everything, right? His sovereignty gives me hope that he's ruling and reigning in heaven as the psalmist talks about, that he's doing exactly what pleases him. We have to keep in mind that tragedies, while they're, they're certainly inconsistent with God's desire for his creation, he allows those things to happen and he uses those things for his purposes because he's promised those things will not cease until when? Until when Christ comes. So, so we shouldn't expect tragedies to be removed. They won't be removed until Jesus comes back. And so in the meantime, God rules and reigns over tragedy, uses them for good purposes for his glory. That's the criticism of the true God, that he's not present, that he's not in existence. Why? Because our, 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 our minds look around and see evil happening, and so therefore he can't be here. He can't exist. And so the psalmist reminds us, no, he does exist. He's in the heavens. He does all that pleases. Number two, we need to understand the appeal of false gods to begin deconstructing our sin. Understand the appeal of false gods to begin deconstructing your sin. I think there's, there's two real temptations to follow other things besides the one true God. Motivation number one, and this is, this is for our youth because I think you guys feel it sometimes maybe more than your parents. It's the fact that the majority are following other things besides the one true God. A lot of times it's not that our reasoning has convinced us of anything. It's that we're looking around and everybody else is doing this, so I guess I should be doing it too. Because we do that with all other kinds of things in life too. right? Like People start dressing a certain way, not because they necessarily like it, but because they see other people dressing that way. Things that maybe weren't cool last week are all of a sudden cool because some people are doing it. And so a big temptation to live life outside the authority of God's will for our youth is that you see everybody else doing it. And that becomes appealing because it's like, hey, if everybody else is doing it, I should be doing it too. That was the temptation for Israel, right? As they go into the promised land, God is proactively warning them. Hey, you're gonna go into this land and you're gonna see all these other nations worshiping all these other gods, don't do it don't do it. Ignore the fact that everybody else is going to be doing this. You keep worshiping me. And he promises them blessings and cursings pending how they respond to that truth. But there's a big temptation for us, big temptation for our youth. Guys and girls, listen to me. There's a big temptation for you to live outside the authority of God's will, not because it makes sense to you, but because everybody else is just doing it that way. We have to reject what the majority is doing. What the majority is doing is probably not right. The second appeal for why this would be something we would be prone to do, to not follow the one true God and instead follow other things or pursue other things outside of his will. I think it's tied into a weakness of the idol. It says they have mouths, but they do not speak. Think about that. Idols that don't speak, you don't have to obey. If the God is silent, then you don't have to obey him. All right, so as we start pursuing things like money and sex and power it's easy to obey those things. It's easy to pursue those things when those gods aren't warning us or telling us anything. So when you, when you remove the speaking God from the picture and you just pursue other things, there's no speaking against it that you have to listen to. And so the majority does it. There's no warnings against it from these gods. And so we go after these things potentially. Idols are seen in those things that we trust to give our meaning and purpose and joy and salvation to. It's things that excite our attention demands our resources and we give willingly our sacrifices to it the bible would tell us to detect these things and destroy these things to expose them for what they are and we're going to look through this list here in just a second to expose them for what they are and to keep them from us to keep them from us when we think about deconstructing idols it starts with number one keeping god elevated to his appropriate position psalm 34 verse 15 the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. We've talked in the last several weeks about how God sees us. He goes with us. He hears us. These should be things that appeal to us that we would find in a God. 1 Peter 3, 12. First Peter chapter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We need to elevate our God. We need to see, like we talked about two weeks ago, we need to see those attributes, his His omnipresence, the fact that he's always with us, his omniscience, his knowledge. Those are good things, not bad things. Does that mean that God always knows where we go? Yeah. Does that mean he always knows when we're in sin? Yeah. But it also means he knows everything going on in our life, knows exactly what we need, knows exactly what good we need, and so we can find hope and encouragement in that. So step one is keeping God elevated. Step two is putting idols in their place. Remembering that they're created. They fail in their ultimate provision. So let's look at that list real quick. The list that the psalmist draws our attention to to see the weakness of idols. They're silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Noses but do not smell, hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. They have no mouths, meaning they can't speak. They can't give guidance. They can't make promises and they can't offer encouragement. No eyes. They can't offer protection. They can't offer oversight or understanding to us. They have no ears. They can't hear prayers. They can't respond to our needs. When we spend a portion of our service today crying out to God for the needs of our church people, false gods can't hear those cries for help. They can't do anything with those cries for help. It's interesting, the piece about no noses, because I don't know that I've ever really cared that God had a nose or that he smells, right? Doesn't seem maybe relevant. Like that could be one that, hey, I don't really feel that impacting my life to think about God smelling. And yet when you think about how that's pictured in scripture, think about how that's pictured in scripture. It's, it's God receiving the sacrifices right? The sweet aroma is how it's pictured in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I jotted a few of these down if you want to jot them down and and look at them yourself later, but Genesis chapter 8 verse 21. This is the the sacrifices that are offered shortly after the the flood, right? So Noah and his people come off the ark and they're offering sacrifices to God and God is receiving those. He's smelling those. Maybe the most important though comes in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You can also look at Philippians 4.18, how our obedience is still received as a fragrant offering. So what's, what's the relevance of not having a nose to smell as a false god? It's the idea that there can't be atonement for our mistakes. There can't be atonement for our sins with those gods. There can't be even a pleasing activity done by us towards those gods. Our God possesses the ability to receive sacrifices, to receive the ultimate sacrifice by Christ, which clears us of our sin. No hands that, go, that, that can work for us, can't do anything for us. No feet that go with us, can't go with us. Um, in fact, you can read in Isaiah 46 and Jeremiah 10, both of these chapters make light of the fact that the idols that Israel's tempted to worship they have to carry them around. They have to carry the idols, right? Both of those passages then talk about God relaying to them, I will carry you. If you'll put down the idols, I will carry you. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Things that false gods can't do. And the warning to us is if we don't rid ourselves of these idols, we'll become like them. We'll, we'll conform to their image. That's what verse 8 says. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about us trusting in the one true God and being conformed to his image though. Being like him. Being transformed by him. That's what we're called to do. Right, So we, we remember God's glory is always the goal. We deconstruct idols to keep ourselves from them. And then number three, we trust his help and protection to praise him. We trust his protection and help to praise him. It says in verse nine, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Note what God does, because we've focused here on what false gods don't do. What does God do? He provides help. He provides protection. It goes on in verse 12, talking about the blessing that will come to the house of Israel, the house of Aaron, and those who fear the Lord. So not only help and protection, but blessing. And then he even says, may the Lord give you increase you and your children, right? There's, there's unbelievable help and protection and blessing and increase that comes from following God. Who does he do it for? Look at the list of of individuals that receive this type of care from God. I think it's important to see how the, the distinctions are made. The house of Israel, the house of Aaron, those who fear the Lord. I don't know if it's clear exactly what these mean, but if you go and read in Ezra, when the people are coming back from captivity these three groupings are, are somewhat referenced in the people that are gathering to worship God once again. You have people identified as Israel, those who had gone off into captivity. You've got the priests of the house of Aaron being identified and, and kind of pulled out of that group as well. And then you also have these stragglers that maybe weren't exactly thrown into the captivity piece. They were kind of left behind and left to intermingle with, with uh, other nations during that time period of captivity. So, Uh, You may have some um, uh, marriages into other nations, and yet they're still fearing Yahweh. They're still kind of tied to their traditions of Israel. And so I think you you group all these people together here. You've got the clear nation of Israel. You've got the leaders, the spiritual leaders in the nation of Israel. And then these other people that are kind of outliers, maybe even classified as Gentiles in some way, and yet they fear the Lord. These all together can be receiving all of these blessings and help and protection from God. The psalmist says the small and the great. That should be encouraging to all of us here because there's small and great here. Right? There, there, there's people who this world would consider great and others that would be considered less than great maybe. And you don't have to worry about which group you're in because regardless of which group you're in, you can receive everything that's promised here in Psalm 115. Small and great. The house of Israel, the house of Aaron, the, the fears of God, they can receive this blessing. Number one, we see that the Lord possesses the power to provide us with all we need in this life. He's our help. He is our help. When you call for help, you typically call, you typically call upon those who can provide it, right? That's who you want to come help you, depending on what the type of help you need is, right? We had um, high school graduation at Trinity and it was hot outside, and we had um, an individual there who needed medical attention that kind of had, had succumbed to the, the, the elements, right? Was, was dehydrated and needed help. Thankfully, we had professional um, healthcare workers on site that we were able to say, hey, we need you. We need your help. Come now, right? And so they were able to assist this woman. God says, I'm your help, right? Like, I'm the, the qualified being to give you the type of help that you need. You can call upon me because I am your help. He's the source of all the help that we need. But number two, he also possesses the, pot- the power to protect us from all we don't need in this life. He possesses the power to provide us with all that we do need, but also what we don't need. I was really drawn to this idea of God being our shield, especially in light of what the psalmist has to describe at the beginning about where is their God. If this passage, this chapter is being written after the exile, then you probably do have nations kind of ridiculing Israel saying, where's your God been? Like, you've lost everything. Everything's been destroyed. Your temple's torn down. Like, everything's gonna have to be rebuilt. Where, where is your God? But as I said, God doesn't keep us from tragedy completely until Jesus comes back. But what he does promise is that everything's used for good. So think about the type of shield that he is then. Right? Like it's one thing to say like God is a shield and nothing gets through. Right? Nothing gets through. But the way that God presents himself as a shield for us is that the things that he allows willingly through are only used for good purposes in our life. That's a special kind of shield because he's not just just saying nothing gets through. He's saying, I'm actually gonna allow some things to get through that become used for your good purposes. That's the kind of shield that I want in my life. The type of shield who knows me intimately. Who doesn't just have to throw up a wall and say, I don't know, I'm just gonna protect him from everything. No, I want a God who knows me so well that says, I'm gonna use things. I'm gonna use difficulty in his life. I'm gonna use trials in his life to grow his faith, to strengthen his trust in me. I'm going to use it for good purposes. That's the type of God that we serve. He doesn't shield us from everything, but he does shield us from that which cannot or will not be used for our good. Let me say that again. He doesn't shield us from everything, but does shield us from that which cannot or will not be used for our good. I encourage you just to do a quick word search on on the word shield and see how comforting that concept can be. Psalm eighty four eleven. for the Lord is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That which falls to us or on us is not purposeless. Let me read to you Psalm 33 as we get ready to close. Psalm chapter 33, shout for joy in the Lord, O ye righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. For where he sits enthroned, he looks out at all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. as we hope in you our application i read this passage in joshua to our um our kids at trinity as i did our last chapel this week and i challenged them with the same thing i'm challenging you with today and it comes from joshua chapter 24 verse 14 this is the last time that joshua was going to speak to these people publicly god has led them into the promised land And he says in verse 14, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The question is, evaluate who it is you're going to live for, who who you're going to serve. So adults, our kids, our youth, like, Who are you going to serve and why? Psalm 115 gives us all the reasons to serve the one true God. His steadfast love, his faithfulness. He's a help and a shield to us. All the other gods fall into this category of of gods that can't really help us. Gods that'll let us down. Gods that will fail to deliver on on the promises that we feel like they're making to us. All right, so all the money in the world, all the sexual relationships in the world, all the power in the world, those things will let us down. They will never satisfy. They'll always leave us wanting. Joshua says, you decide if it's evil to serve God. If there's, if there's a, a, a part of you that's crying out, where is God? Because he doesn't seem to be active in my life. If there's, if there's evil about God, then hey, pick something else, but know what you're picking. Know what you're picking. Psalm 115 says, you need to pick the one who's your help. You need to pick the one who has promised to be your shield who will always work good for you. Number one, am I living my life with a focus on making his name great in everything I do? Number two, am I trusting God when he seems absent because I believe he's good? That's when we glorify God, when when, when his, when his presence seems hidden, when we don't see it clearly, when others are doubting it, we're able to keep trusting him because we believe he's a good shield. Number three, am I seeing the flaws of other gods I could serve? to keep myself free from idols. That's the message from John to us. Keep yourself from these things. Keep following the one true God. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We praise you and thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your steadfast love. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. God, I pray that you would keep our minds set on you when we're tempted to wander from the faith because you're doing things that don't make sense to us and your presence seems hidden. God, help us to remember that you are in the heavens and that you're doing exactly what is pleasing to you and that one day all the tragedies will stop, but in the meantime, you are functioning as a helpful shield that protects us from anything that would not be good. But help us to remember that you will let things through that you intend to use for good. Help us to find hope and comfort in that. God, help it to inspire us to live our lives in such a way where you get the glory. Help us to set aside our desires and our ambitions for our own selfish gain. Help us to see that you are worthy of that sacrifice. We thank you. We thank you for being this type of God. We thank you for showing us that you're this type of God. We thank you that you're the type of God that the small and the great can come to. We Thank you for Jesus who makes that possible. It's in your son's name that we pray.